So to our first guest, he won the Somerset Mom Award for his first book in Century, which was published in 20 countries. And it's a remarkable story of publication, which we'll come on to in a bit. His second novel, The Other Hand, was a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. And he unveils his latest novel, Gold Tonight. Now, some of you may remember that John Crace made me learn about football for his memoir, Vertigo. And it was in learning about football that I discovered that Tottenham Hotspurs was one team and not two separate teams. <laughs> I nearly got it wrong again. I can't believe it. And I discovered that Crystal Palace wasn't a place, which was exciting. Um, so this book has accomplished the, the, the sole and singular miracle of making me think extensively and positively um, about the Olympics. Continuing that metaphor, flogging it till it's dead, it's a dead cert for medals. I absolutely love this book, um, and I think that you will too, and Chris Clee is going to read from it now. Welcome him. Hi, how you doing? It's quite amazing to see standing room only at a book event. Um, really appreciate being here. I'd like to thank Damien a lot for inviting all of us and for hosting. Um, thank you all guys for being here. So this is Gold. It's coming out in June. I haven't read from it before, so I hope you'll like it. It's about um, two athletes. Um, and before I introduce you to them, I think I'd just like to introduce you to their coach. Tom Voss still remembered how it had felt for him, back in Mexico in 68, to miss out on Olympic bronze by one-tenth of one second. He could feel the anguish of it even now, in his chest, raw and unavenged. 44 years later, he still noticed the sharp passage of every tenth of every second. The inflections of time were the teeth of a saw bisecting him. This was not how other people experienced time. They noticed its teeth indistinctly in a blur of motion, and they were amazed to wake up one day and find themselves cut in half by it, like the assistance of a negligent magician. But Tom knew how the cut was made. He took a call from his athlete's agent, while he was soaking in the bath, persuading his knees to unlock. She's been sleeping around again, the agent said. It's all over Facebook. Facebook, said Tom. It's a social networking site, Thomas. People use it to exchange information with friends. Okay, a friend is someone who... It's okay, Tom said. I know what Facebook is. Zoe's got a lot of likes on it, right? Uh, yeah, 90,000. He held the phone between his ear and his shoulder while he massaged his knees. His inflamed ligaments weren't responding to the application of ibuprofen, Rob. In truth, he knew that they would only respond to him applying several decades of top-level coaching insight to his own life. It was maybe time to admit that a 66-year-old man shouldn't be doing clean and jerk with a heavy barbel. But hey... There were accountants who bollocked up their own taxes. There were doctors who smoked Marlboro Reds. Why should he be the first old man to listen to himself? He was a sports coach. He wasn't some kind of bloody pioneer. So anyway, the agent was saying, she sleeps with this guy, 
And apparently he wakes up and realizes who she is, and he goes and plasters it all over the internet, where right at this moment the salacious details are being read by every single person on Earth, with the exception of the Chinese, because Facebook is blocked there, um, and you, because you're a reactionary old man with no interest in fun stuff. Do you want me to read you the filth he's posted? No, said Tom. I'm going to read it to you, she said. <laughs> Tom heard her out, but he didn't know what he was supposed to do with the information. I'm Zoe's coach on the track, he said finally. Who she takes to bed is her own business. Agreed, said the agent, but this is just to keep you in the loop and to suggest that... Tom growled. What did a loop have to do with it? Why couldn't people just say, I wanted to give you the information? Is everything all right? Said the agent. Christ, that's a huge philosophical question. Um, well, you made a sort of noise. Yeah, actually, I growled at you. It's an Aussie thing. And I guess it worked because you stopped talking. <laughs> Look, I'm just trying to help, okay? What you're trying to do, darling, is protect your 15%. Well, look, she's the face of Perrier, Tom. It's worth protecting. Look, if Fizzy Water wants a face, that's Fizzy Water's problem. My job is to help Zoe win gold in the sprint in the Olympics in 127 days' time. Yeah, and what I'm saying is that we're on the same side here. Surely it can't help her focus to be all over Facebook all the time. I won't disagree, but what do you want me to do? Shut down Facebook. I mean, I'll check, but I don't think I own it. Well, could you just have a talk with Zoe? She respects you. Tom smiled, and his voice softened. Don't kid yourself, he said. I've been trying to calm Zoe down since she was 19. If I had my way, I'd keep her asleep whenever she wasn't training or racing. I'd pop one of those little tranquilizer darts into her with a blowpipe, like they do with tigers in the wild. But what can I do? I'm a coach. All they give us is a whistle and a stopwatch. The agent murmured sympathetically. Well, I hope you can do something, because this will be all over the papers tomorrow, and these things have a habit of spiralling. You should at least encourage her not to give them any more ammunition. Tom sighed. I'll pull her in, and I'll see what I can do. That's all I can say. Thanks, Tom. I owe you one. Yeah, well, maybe you can make me the face of something. The agent laughed. Through the phone, it sounded like a goose honking with its head jammed in a half-empty Lyle's golden syrup can. <laughs> and what would you be the face of? I don't know. Nurofen? I use a lot of that. Oh, I think they'd be looking to cast someone young and pain-free. <laughs> that's ironic. But that's what I do. That's show business. Tom clicked off the call. He thought it over for a minute, and then he texted Zoe to be at his flat in an hour. If he was going to assert some authority over her, it had better be on his patch. Rule number one of tiger training, make sure the beast that it knows it's coming into your territory. Zoe texted back straight away. Okay, boss. Good girl. She knew what it was about. She'd show up. He'd tell her off. Then he'd make them both a cup of Earl Grey and send her on her way. But he did feel a lurch of worry for Zoe. He'd tried so hard to get it right with her. He'd been a terrible dad himself, but 
his athletes sometimes felt like a second chance. He cared more than he probably should on his salary for these two women that he'd trained since they were 19. He let himself daydream about what he would do to the guy who'd smeared Zoe all over the internet. They were pretty good, these vengeance fantasies. With functioning knees, you could kick all kinds of shit out of a fellow. This is one of the many advantages that wishful thinking held over reality. But still, he did care about Zoe. She was hard to read, and maybe that's why he liked her so much. For all he knew, she really believed in the good-looking losers that she fell for. He often tried to talk about it with her, but she always made a joke out of it, as if arriving for her early morning training session with her heart in tiny pieces was the most everyday evil to be endured, like losing an earring or not finding a seat on the bus. She was defensive about it, and sometimes that came out as sarcasm, and she was right. What would he know about a young woman searching for love? But if Tom had to pin it down, he'd say that she was more vulnerable than reckless. He added more hot water to his bath. And the trouble was that he saw stuff in men that Zoe could never see. He knew what the awful bastards were like. Steam rose. He couldn't blame Zoe for being desperate. The odds against her finding love rose every day. She was only getting more notorious, and men were only getting worse. The planet was filling up with good-looking young worldlings, built entirely of opposites, cancelling themselves out, and, speaking as a man, leaving nothing that you'd honestly want to go for a drink with. This new species of guy paired city shoes with backwards beards. They played in bands, but they worked in offices. They hated the rich, but they bought lottery tickets. They laughed at comedies about the shittiness of lives that were based quite pointedly on their own. <laughs> and worst of all, they were so endlessly bloody gossipy. Every single thing they did, from unboxing a phone through to sleeping with his athlete, they had this compulsion to stick it online and see what everyone else thought. Yeah. Their lives were a howling vacuum <laughs> that sucked in attention. He didn't see how Zoe could ever find love with this new breed of men. They had cyclonic souls that sucked like Dysons and never needed their bag changing in order to keep on and on and on sucking. <laughs> how are we doing for time? Is that good for the end of a reading? Yeah. yeah. yeah sure. Thank you. So, so there we met Tom, and I, I was wondering whether or not you do the accent. Um, I'm, I'm glad you didn't. We've had a few accent disasters up here. But um, we didn't get to meet Zoe and Kate. Now, it's fair to say the female cyclists have never been a massive interest group for me. Um, <laughs> but at this present moment in time, I'm, I, I, and I said this on, on, on Twitter to you earlier, I couldn't read it fast enough. I had to know... Who was going to win, and if, if one person was going to win or not. And it, I had lactic acid in my eyes. They were going that fast. I, I, should, like, I had cramps in my optic nerve, and there was no one there to massage them. And, but the, but, so we do, see, we didn't get to meet those two characters in that moment. And there's a, there are, there are, Jack is the man who is the romantic 
interest for, for one or, or both, possibly. Um, and there's also another character who I want to mention in depth in a minute, Sophie, um, who is uh, their daughter, who is very sick, and she has leukemia, and she has another whole kind of race going on. So those are the other characters we're going to be talking about. But I want to begin by asking you, um, you know, this is, this is your third novel, and it's the third novel where you've chosen to write um, about very closely about the relationships between women um, and, in, and a female voice. What keeps, what keeps bringing you back to that? Well, originally I decided that I never wanted to write about myself. And uh, whenever I pick up a pen, I try to be someone different. For me, that's the whole fun of writing. You know, I have to cross a line every time I start. You know, I wake up every day thinking, well, who do I want to be now? Um, so I try to cross a line of, of uh, gender, um, or of race, or of sexuality, or of nationality every time I do it. Um, originally, it started as a device to, uh, to not be myself, to force myself to do research, to listen very carefully to what people say. And I think, as a writer, you need to be an observer and a listener um, to language. Um, and it helped me to do that, to, to write from another point of view. And then I actually just worked out that it's um, a much more interesting thing to do. If you're the kind of writer... Um, like me, I hope, who's interested in um, how people's lives um, intersect with the great themes of the day, like um, I've written about terrorism, I've written about immigration, and now I'm writing about sport. Which um, is, I have to say, I mean, there isn't another book about the Olympics that I'm going to read. I think yeah. that, you know, I, I, like so many people in this room, I'm totally turned off by it because of the cuts and funding and all the rest of it. And here I get this book about it, and I pick it up, and I'm like, mm -hmm. and it genuinely gripped me from, from start mm. to finish and because it's not about sport. Yeah, but well, you get the sport language. And yeah. I want to know about terrible things that happen in the book, like the word medal being used as a verb <laughs> um, and <laughs> isotonics and warm downs. Like, what, what, did you basically <laughs> just, did you just stalk a gym? Did you, <laughs> what what did you do? Were you like Beckett recording conversations with the people downstairs? What, how, how did that all yeah. work out? Well, it's interesting you say that. The, you did stop the, it, Jim. The, <laughs> there's some. Um, the Olympics is the most beautiful thing. You know, the the motto of the Olympics: you know, swifter, higher, stronger. Is the most perfect expression of everyone's search to to be bigger themselves, to be bigger than themselves, to do more. But you wouldn't know it. You know, from reading all the press about the Olympics, mm. you wouldn't know the pain that these athletes are going through every single day um, because we only concentrate on them for three weeks every four years. Um, actually, on the offbeat, that's what I'm interested in them as a writer. You know, I'm interested in the sacrifices they make in their families. Mm. I, I'm interested in um, the pain that they go through in training. And yeah, I research this stuff. I mean, one of the things that I think I can do as a writer is go to places that people don't normally go and report back. Like the gym. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I go, you know I go. Yeah. I, so I trained. I trained. I, I, I um, put myself through this... A really intensive program of cycling training, and I would be out at four o'clock in the morning. Did you really training? Yeah, and okay, here's some things I learned. Uh, it really hurts, <laughs> and, and you don't feel great. Right? A lot of the time, you don't feel great. So we see all of these athletes, and they show up on the screen, you know, once every four years, looking beautiful, really sculpted. Especially, actually, cyclists. You know, they they they're pretty much physically perfect. Um, and there's not much left to the imagination. Uh, they're, they're in these skin-tight lycra suits looking very shiny. 
and they turn up under the floodlights glowing with an inner light and we think they must be the most that they, they must feel wonderful inside all the time like they just basically live in narnia uh, <laughs> and, and come to see us every four years Actually, something I discovered is they feel like shit most days. <laughs> I, was, um, I was talking to a coach um, about uh, some of the marathon runners, about uh, Paula Radcliffe, um, at the height of her training. I mean, you see her ready to race. You see her after she's tapered for three weeks for a marathon. Um, Sorry, tapered? Tapered is... They, 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 they take their training down. They rack it down. Okay. But at the height of her training, this is how glamorous her life was. She was sleeping for 16 hours a day in order to recover from her training. She didn't do anything else apart from eat and sometimes answer the phone. And then yeah. she would run marathons and shit mm-hmm. herself. She? <laughs> <laughs> no, she did. Yeah. She did. No, she did. Yeah. So, so, so that's, um, that's what I wanted to explore, what the... Um, what these guys are like and what their lives are like when we're not looking at them. And that's I th- what I think you can do in a novel that you can't do in news media, to actually find out what these people are like. Well, they have family lives, and I think that's what's really interesting, is that, is that I, I, I thought of them as being single and just kind of... Like they had a vocation, and it was the Olympics, and that was all that they would do. But, and, I, and, you know, when, when we realise that they have relationships and that they're affected, and in particularly where there are two athletes in one relationship, and they, they split the day up into blocks of hours, and they... Um, and they, you know, one trains for four, the other is off for four. And they, I mean, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of like school or, you know, or prison or something like that. It's really intense. Um, but, but I want to I wanna talk about Sophie because she is this kind of wonderful character. She's this child and she's suffering from leukemia and she has this incredibly rich inner world where uh, she escapes into Star Wars. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just totally brilliant. Um, she you know, it, it intersects with the real world and stuff where, like, she's having chemotherapy and she's sick and the only thing she can be sick in is the Millennium Falcon. That's the kind of her toy. Um, but, but she has this world and she escapes into it. Um, and I was thinking of, of the column that you did, the, the, the Down With The Kids column that, that, that you did in The Guardian, which you stopped because you said, that, unlike some people, uh, you, you didn't want to kind of, you know, use, use your kids. Um, <laughs> Major Kask. Um, and so... so um, but it made me think as well of one of our other authors, Richard Holloway, um, and, and he quotes Hugh McDermott, and he says um, in this poem, I could not confine myself to his bedside. I was impatient, you know this poem? I was impatient of his squalid little needs. I longed for my wide range of interests, whereas his mother sank without another care to that dread level of nothing but life itself and stayed day and night till he was better again. And this this poem actually relates to one of the critical moments in the novel, doesn't it, later on, where choices have to be made. Do you want to talk a bit about that without giving too much away? Yeah, sure. It's, um, what, I li- what I try to do is to take everyday choices that we have and just put them to the extreme, where people are made, forced to make a really big decision. So everyone who has a family has a choice between uh, whether they're going to do the right thing for their family and whether they're going to do the right thing for their job. Um, and if your job is to go out like a gladiator into an Olympic arena and, and beat people, and it's fairly uncompromising. There's nowhere to hide. You either train for it or you don't. Um, and at one point in the book, uh, as with their child getting sicker and sicker, they do have to make this really elemental choice. Uh, what are they going to do? You know, are they, are they going to go for um, personal glory um, or are they going to prioritize uh, the love of their child over The that? love and life of their child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, that's what I like to do, to push people into a corner in a book. I sometimes think a novel is a, is a torture chamber for your poor characters. I mean, it's not like real life at all. You, you give these people a, a dilemma to chew on, 
and you do a slow build at the beginning and everyone gets what they're going to have to do. And then you can just increase the pressure and the walls start to close in on them. And you can see this choice coming down the line at them before they can. And the poor souls, you know, you, you, you put extreme compression on them until eventually they crack. And that's the fun of a novel, really, to work out... Sadist. <laughs> to it is, it to is, work out which way they'll go. It is extreme, because I, I really didn't... And I have to say, I really didn't know which way it was going to go. Um, and, I, and I do also think that the genius of this novel is that it turns pretty much on one sentence. I'm not going to tell you which page it's on, but I do know, because I found it. Um, and, and I thought, no, he... No, <laughs> He hasn't done that. That that you know that would be really dark. That would you know no. That's you know and and in fact you did. Um, <laughs> so um, and and you were speaking there about um, emo emotional torture. There is a really extended um, kind of part of the book which is dedicated to the discussion of Phil Collins, <laughs> which we which we discussed earlier. Which is possibly the only thing you have in common with Brett Easton Ellis. But I wanted I wanted to talk about music generally in the book because there's a lot of music in the book, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, all of the characters have um, have tunes that they listen to. Um, so something I noticed a lot about athletes, they pump themselves up before events, often with the most outrageously, awfully naff music. Um, you know, they'll be listening to Bon Jovi, um, top volume, yeah, often, living on a prayer. There's uh, things like this, like basically soft rock at top volume. And you just think, how is this making our athletes competitive? Um, you know, That's why we lose. Could, Surely yeah. if they listen to better music, they would win. Yeah, I mean, some of these, um, if you change the soundtrack, you get a different set of results quite often, I think. Um, but yeah, all of the characters have, uh, have music that they listen to. Um, and it was important to me. And, um, and Tom, do you have music that you listen to? I have music that I listen to uh, when I write, but not, um, you know, I don't pump myself up with Aerosmith <laughs> before, I, before I sit down at the keyboard. Laughing in an elevator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Phil Collins doesn't come out of it too well. He doesn't. I'm glad that he doesn't. Yeah. I just want to, I want to talk <laughs> briefly about your, your, your first novel, Incendiary, because this is a remarkable story that some people may not be aware of, and it is fascinating. Um, the, the, the novel, in a kind of you know, prophetic way, concerns a, a terrorist attack on London, um, and the novel was published on 7-7. Um, what, what happened? What was your experience of publication or not? Yeah, um, it was on the 6th of July, we had um, a publication party for, for the novel and lots of people showed up. And I don't know if you remember, 6th of July 2005 was the day that we learned we were going to get the Olympics. Um, it was a huge party in London. Everyone was out on the street. It was beautiful weather. Um, it was great. Things were going well. I remember being at the launch party, um, seeing the amazing spirit that there was around this idea that we'd got the Olympics and it was coming here and it was going to be a big artistic celebration and everyone was going to get involved, not just athletes, but also culturally it would be a huge event for the country. And I remember thinking, even then, you know, I'm going to write about that one day. You know, this is my city and I'll write about it. And it was this wave of euphoria. Um, woke up on the morning of the 7th of July, uh, really hung over after the party. It was, I was taking my kid back from the nursery. I could hardly stand. Um, I was walking down the street, and all of these ambulances started coming down the street, traveling in one direction. And there, there were sirens everywhere. There were helicopters in the sky. And there were people saying, have you heard? Have you heard? And so I, I had a book on the shelves, um, which was about a terrorist attack on London. Um, and... Uh, I came home and I saw on the TV breaking news, terrorist attacks in London. And the next call was from my publisher. Uh, and it was very much, a, what are we going to do now? 
uh, phone call. And so, yeah, my experience of publishing um, my first book was that it really wasn't published. I mean, about um, an hour after it had gone onto the shelves, it was taken off the shelves again um, in most places. And do you think that was the right thing to do? Yeah, it was the right thing to do, for sure. I mean, if you're someone like me who who works in this contested space between where the newspapers um, stop caring about something and where historians start caring about something, mm. that's a five-year um, space, which I think, as an artist, is up for grabs. And I want to inhabit that um, and inform the discussion that people have about these issues. I mean, I think that's why it's exciting to be a novelist working in that space. But you also have to accept that if you work in that space, it is contested, and one of the things that you're competing with is reality. Right? Uh, and when reality happens, you have to learn um, when to step back and give it best. You know, more than 50 people had died. Um, it wasn't the time to be going out in public and saying, hey, I've got a book about terrorism. It's, it's so timely, everyone read it. You know, that would, that would have been a, a crass thing to do. I'm just not sure um, that some publishers yeah. wouldn't have thought, great, you know. I really, I mean, I, when, you know, when I, I remember that and I remember it happening, I was thinking, some people, I'm glad you made that decision and that's how you feel, but I'm sure, I'm, sh I'm not so sure that some people wouldn't. Um, I'm going to take two questions. Of course, Sylvia. Yeah. Hello. Hi. I have many questions for you, but... Um, we'll take one. So the question for those of you who didn't hear it is, is that Sylvia has been finding out about Chris. Um, and in, in, in her various findings out, she's discovered that he likes to engage with his readers who get in touch with them. So how far do you take that engagement? And do you, do you think, the, as a writer, and, as a, and, how, and, how, and, how, and how helpful? Is the, I mean, do you find it useful when people tweet you and Facebook you saying, oh, I like this, or I didn't like this? Or, I mean, yeah. genuinely, and does, it, does that affect mm. how you write? I mean, if you yeah. get somebody being shitty first thing in the morning, does that mean you can't then write for the rest yeah. of the day, or does it work? It affects you a lot. Well, I, th I think this is the world that we live in, and I, I don't think of myself as, a, as an author or a writer or a novelist. I think of myself as a storyteller. I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story to an audience, and, and now I'm never off duty. Right? Mm -hmm. that, um, I, part, part of what I do is my books are really politically engaged and they really do try to own this contested space where opinion is formed uh, about issues like terrorism or, or, or like immigration, for example. And if you're doing that, yeah, then the job never stops. And part of it is acknowledging that people are going to have a response to your work. Um, and often that response is startling and it's interesting and it makes you, I hope, a better writer if you listen to it. Um, also, some people are just tremendously nice. Uh, most people are really pleasant. They, they only drop you a line if they've liked your stuff. Um, it's very, you know, people are cheerful. You know, 99 out of 100 people have something positive to say. Um, and I, I find that very encouraging. I think it's all part of an ongoing conversation that we have. And I think it's more fun to be a novelist now than it ever was because it's like you know, th this is the fun part of it right the public discussion of the work the questions people ask um and i think now that never stops with with twitter you're always in the game he's obviously on the good twitter right so i'll take i'll take this question there that's the last question have have, have you 
you, you like when you write to occupy a the sort of different persona or a different space. Have you ever felt nervous about that? Have you ever thought, oh, actually, maybe I shouldn't kind of infringe on the other 50% of the population? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm very conscious of it. I, I realise there are sensitivities when I cross boundaries of, uh, of gender or of race, for example. Um, but I defend absolutely my right to do it, and I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's by effortfully trying to understand other people's lives um, that we grow ourselves. I think it's what we all do. Um, and and I, I don't think we ever stop imagining ourselves into other lives. And I think it's a, a good and important thing to do as a storyteller. Um, also, you know, you, it would be really boring just to write about oneself. You know, I'm a suburban dad. I live in Kingston. Who wants to hear about that? <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I, I love the adventure of being other people. Um, so I would defend absolutely my right to be whoever I want to be when I pick up a pen. I think that's the, the magic and the majesty of it. Um, but I would also um, lay myself open to um, any criticism of that. You know, if people think that I've done it wrong, I will listen to that. And that's part of um, what I was talking about before, about being open and receptive on, on Twitter. You know, I, I get into long conversations, for example, about my last book, um, there are a lot of people who didn't think that I should have written from the point of view um, of a 14-year-old Nigerian girl. Right? So uh, whilst defending my right to do that um, and saying that my best thing that I can do is to research the hell out of that character and make sure that I do it right... So um, how do you do that in the I case of a 14-year-old Nigerian girl? What do you do? Mm -hmm. You talk. You talk to people. And you just go up to 14-year-old Nigerian girls and be like, <laughs> talk to me, I want it. I mean, how seriously? Yeah. I'm really interested. Yeah, how do you do it? Well, one of the amazing things about living in London is that the whole world is here. Right. right? Um, and you, it takes one tweet, one email, one phone call to say, look, hey, has anyone come from this specific part of the Delta region of Nigeria that I'm interested in and want to talk about it? And the answer is, yeah, people love talking. Right, so people love talking about their lives. Was there a little bee kind of person that you, that you met? Who was that? I didn't meet someone like her, uh -huh. but I met a lot of people that sort of triangulated that person. Hmm. Um, there's also a lot of things you can do now with the internet as a writer that are really exciting. You can listen to internet radio from wherever you like in the world. And I was listening to talk radio from Port Harcourt in, in Nigeria. And you know, talk radio is the same everywhere in the world. It's people phoning in to complain about sports results and, and taxes. You know? But you can dial your ear into the specific register in which people are talking, and that's the job, you know, just uh, tuning your ear into characters until they start to inhabit you. Yeah. Well, I loved listening to the characters in this novel. Um, I really did. Um, and I think that it's going to do tremendously well. So thank you, Chris Lee. Thank you. Thank you very much.